everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 89 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock on your I Choose the Danger podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Matthew, how excited are you that we are doing Star Trek again? I'm very excited about this one. I am a little nervous because we couldn't like we reached out to the normal uh, Trekkie people and said, "Hey, does anyone want to come and do Star Trek Three with us?" And everyone was like, "Yeah, give us a shout when you get Star Trek Four. Give us a shout when you get Star Trek Six. But, <laughs> but thanks anyway. So cool, 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 cool. Okay. Which which is really funny. So do you remember way back in 2016 we recorded uh, Die Hard? Yes. Can you remember back that far? I can. Um, and I talked about how we had Die Hard on video, and it was one of like three videos I just had on rotation each weekend. Mm-hmm. And then in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I talked about how we had three videos, and that was the second of the three videos that we had on rotation. Yes. The Search for Spock is the third. Really? Yes. Okay. This this is, I think, the first Star Trek I can remember watching. Okay. That's interesting, because I thought this was one that you didn't like very much. There have been moments in my life this has been my favorite, and there have been moments where I watched it too much because it was my favorite, so it's become less of a favorite i don't know i don't i I think star trek 6 is objectively the best um so i would describe that as my favorite but there is a lot in this that i do quite enjoy he says nervously (laughs) okay (laughs) i I think this is a very solid film i think there's a lot of good in here and very little not good i just think it's difficult because it doesn't get to where the other ones got to i'm jumping way ahead aren't i we're gonna get to this yeah (laughs) okay this is kind of the reason that I... Is it this film? I think it's this film that is the reason I watched the film The Terminator when I was like seven. Okay. Because I went downstairs. I'd been watching Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock the day before on video. Maybe not seven. Maybe a little bit older. Went downstairs in the morning and pressed play on the video machine because I'd been watching a video the day before. And it turns out that adults do things when you're not around. And <laughs> <laughs> my parents had been watching the film... The Terminator, uh, on video, and had apparently turned it off at the bit that the fire melts all the skin. Spoilers for Terminator, by the way, a 30-something-year-old film. The bit where it's in the fire and all the skin is burnt off and it's a giant robot chasing after them in a factory, that was the bit that came on when I pressed play. So you were either incredibly terrified or ready to watch the rest of that movie. Yeah, really quite terrifying. (laughs) Like, oh, this is not what I expected. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, poor baby Matthew. That that is possibly the first R-rated film I watched. Although I didn't watch all of it, but that's my first memory of an R-rated film. Okay. All right. Assuming it is R-rated, I'm fairly sure it was 18 over here. I have no idea what it was in the States. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. You assume R, right? Probably. Because there was also, like, a tiny bit of nudity. (laughs) <laughs> except when i watched it years later in the u.s so when i was in my 20s and it was randomly on tv and they cut out the sex bit but left in all the violent stuff of course because american tv <laughs> yes it is rated r right yes okay but yeah you you guys like violence all day long but the not tiny little bit of side boob yeah no no <laughs> Won't someone think of the children? Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we are here to talk about Star Trek Three, not about violence and sex. So, Star Trek. That's my specialist subject. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Happy September, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock is obviously the third movie in the Star Trek film series and the second part of a three-film story arc that began with The Wrath of Khan and ends with 1986's The Voyage Home. After the success of The Wrath of Khan, Paramount moved quickly to start The Search for Spock, giving producer Harve Bennett the approval to begin writing it the day after Khan opened. You may recall from our last episode about Star Trek... Nope, sorry, two episodes ago, because we did these out of order, that Leonard Nimoy reluctantly joined the cast of The Wrath of Khan, and only after he was promised that Spock would die. When Paramount asked if he wanted to play Spock in the third film, he responded with, you're damned right, and I want to direct that picture, becoming the first cast member to do so. The movie had a $16 million budget and opened on June 1st, 1984. It made back its budget in its first week and went on to gross over $87 million worldwide. It generally received positive reviews, though less so than its predecessor. 
So if you've not seen Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, this film is about some people looking for someone called Spock. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a little on the nose, isn't it? It is a little on the nose, absolutely. After a visit from Spock's father, James Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise return to Genesis to recover the body of Spock and uh, deal with his death. And other stuff happens too. And Klingons are there. Klingons are there. <laughs> Doc Brown Klingons are there. Doc Brown Klingons, indeed. <laughs> So the crew is basically the same as we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirsty Alley is now Robin Curtis. Mm-hmm. I've got a feeling you're going to say you've never seen her in anything. Correct. Yeah, because no. Christopher Lloyd is our, our big addition then. Yes. Have you? What's your, your experience of Christopher Lloyd? Well, I mean, he's Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Okay. <laughs> you never watched Taxi then? No. Okay. I mean, I have seen him in other stuff, but every time I see him, I'm like, oh, hey, it's Doc Brown. It's just Doc Brown doing this other thing in this other show. Okay. Because that's how my brain thinks. Yeah. And you've not seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit yet either. Correct. Okay. He's in that? He is. Now, did you recognize him in this? I did. It took a minute because mm. I wasn't expecting him to play a Klingon. Okay. But it worked perfectly. It's it's very good. It is very different from Doc Brown. Very different. Like. Yes. Yeah. Um, we'll return to that in a minute. I wanted to make a mention of Merritt Buttrick, who played uh, David Marcus. <laughs> I always called him David Kirk. David Marcus. Mm. Uh, Merritt Buttrick, this is uh, the second Star Trek film he's in. He passed away a couple of years after this in 1989 at the age of 29 um, from AIDS-related illnesses. Uh, everyone speaks incredibly highly of him. So it's one of those, it, it feels like we've missed out on some good work from him, sadly. Okay. Now, so he played David in both movies, The Wrath of Khan and this yes. one? Okay. Yeah. I couldn't keep track of who was the same and who wasn't the same. I mean, yeah. it was him and Savick were really the only two that mattered, but... Yeah, Carol's utterly gone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we might even have mentioned that on, on the Wrath of Khan episode. Like, it's quite nice that he, that Kirk and Carol, there's no sort of hint of them getting back together. They're comfortable with their relationship. Mm-hmm. I feel like any other film would have tried to force them together, but she is just not in this at all. Right. Mm. Um, okay. Did you enjoy Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock? I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Of 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 the three, how are you feeling about it? Is this is this your favorite so far? Yes. Okay. I don't understand why people hate this one. <laughs> I really don't. Across the board, whenever I told people I had to watch this one, they were like, "Oh, I'm sorry." And we couldn't find anybody who wanted to come talk about it with us because everybody hates it. So I, I I, just don't understand. I mean, so I was reading about like the curse of the odd numbered mm-hmm. Star, uh, Star Trek films. And as an idea, that makes sense. But in reality, it doesn't because I think this one is better than The Wrath of Khan. Like okay. to me, I feel like so and... So I only read about it in one place, and so this this may actually be incorrect or slightly biased or whatever, but the general idea is the way I understand it, is that the odd number movies are over-the-top, huge theatrical properties that do fairly well, and no, sorry, it's the even ones that do that. So like The Wrath of Khan was like super, super, super duper successful, and so like riding on the coattails of that, on the next one, which would be the odd-numbered ones they try to outdo it and then that doesn't ever do as well and so then they have to go back to being more simple and so the next one is even better blah 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 and i feel like this one was simpler than the wrath of khan and i feel like it had a better story than the wrath of khan did i don't know i just liked it a lot more and it it does not seem to fit into the pattern of the odd numbered curse Okay. I think this is not as good a film. It's not as smart a film in some ways. It is very much made for people who love the characters and the relationships and the, the um, what do we call it, family of choice thing. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that they are willing to do so much. It is the, the emotional side of actually, no, we need to go and rescue Spock and, and get him back and deal with what's happening with McCoy. Mm-hmm. So if you're not into that... It's not as good. And then there's the fact that they clearly wanted a different sort of villain to Khan, which is absolutely fair. I I think, like you were just saying, they're trying to do something a little different here. 
so the villain doesn't work as well because Khan is such a great villain. <laughs> so there's, there's that problem. Um, and then finally, it's a little bit ropey at times. Some of the effects on the planet, some of the acting of the minor characters, less good. Uh, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll talk about the so, effects. <laughs> yeah, we'll so there. I think when, it, when you get into some of that stuff, if you had to give a number to each element of it, I think Khan would come out better because it is a better all-round film. But if you're into this, if you like your films because you like characters and relationships and people being good people to each other, which I think you might. No, not me. I I think you might. (laughs) um, Then this is the film for you. Well, I wonder if part of it is because we watched them out of order. So you can't really get anything out of this movie if you haven't seen The Wrath of Khan. Like you need that story to understand what's happening here. But by watching... The Wrath of Khan and then going back to the motion picture and then seeing this one, you really get to feel more of that Kirk-Spock relationship. Because like we talked about with Andy in the motion picture episode, the driving force behind that movie was the relationship that Kirk and Spock had. And in that movie, they were obviously both alive, you know, but we got to see how they played off of each other and how they inspired each other and made each other be better. And and so to go straight off of that movie to this movie, which is very much about their friendship as well, just a different facet of it, I think that might be fueling my positivity about this, just because it flowed so nicely. Mm. I'd agree. So, I, I mean, good call making me watch them in that order. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, clearly planned. Absolutely. You know, no, you said well, so well. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think necessarily anyone hates this film, but it is not as good as some of the others. And when you lay on top this idea of the odd number ones are less good, and people use that as a just a given rule of thumb for Star Trek movies, the easy reaction is, ah, uh, you know, it's not the intensity of Wrath of Khan, it's not the goodness of Star Trek Four. So I'm not going to say anything more on. Mm-hmm. It's not the cleverness of uh, Star Trek Six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, but. It's not the boredom of Star Trek 1. It's not the just, uh, whatever you could call it, of Star Trek 5, frankly. So I'm looking forward to getting there, you know. Well, I mean, you didn't want to watch 1 or 3, and I liked them both. So I am not exactly taking (laughs) your hesitation as a sign that I might not like 5 either. So No, 3 I wanted to watch. Okay. Yeah. All right. But 1... It was interesting talking to you guys because I could see it in it from a different perspective and go, yes, I could understand how this film could mean something to you. I still don't think it's actually a very good film. Uh, but yes, I can understand it from that perspective. So, Star Trek 3, you wanted to talk about the effects. Go ahead. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so there were some things that were done really well and there were some things that were done really not well. Okay. And and I think this is a conversation that we've been having a lot lately about movies from this era where... Mm. The practical effects are pretty spot on, and just the special effects are kind of lacking. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and especially because they do some lots of practical effects mm-hmm. with the ship explosions and so on. Mm-hmm. And then every so often there's like a phaser shot <laughs> that just doesn't work. Right. Some of the stuff on the planet wasn't great either, with like all of the destruction going on behind them. <laughs> the big polystyrene rocks. Yeah. <laughs> the, um,. Things I liked. I liked the gross, creepy, crawly microbes that evolved into those giant worm things. Mm. But again, those are practical effects. Mm-hmm. I liked the dog thing. I mean, I didn't like the dog thing, yeah. but as an effect, it, it was done very nicely. Um, and it turns out that thing was a hand puppet. Yeah, I can believe that. And um, funny story, I read that they refused to give it ears because when it had ears or, or move the ears because when it did it made it look cute and they didn't want it to be cute <laughs> nice yeah i'm assuming did, did you see a mention of what that thing was called i'm assuming it's a targ but uh no i saw it called a pet and a dog-like thing because i know wharf had a targ and i've always assumed it's the same thing it probably is but i would imagine that they retconned what it was called with wharf like i imagine here it was just an afterthought that wasn't intended to actually be anything. Oh, no. A targ appears to be like a boar with, I don't know, horns. Oh, okay. Klingon monster dog is what it's called. <laughs> okay, so it is a dog thing. 
Jeez. <laughs> the term monster dog is not the official name of this animal. <laughs> is it not? <laughs> then what is the official name? <laughs> Kavla, my Klingon monster dog. Anyway, sorry. Okay. Other effects you liked? I actually did like the explosion of the Enterprise. That was done mm. really, really well. Mm. Like, my first impression of it as I was watching it was, wow, I thought self-destruct would be more destructive than that because it was just happening in tiny little, like, spots. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing explodes, and I just went, holy shit. <laughs> so I liked that one, um, partially because I did not expect the Enterprise to be destroyed. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll look back around to that in a second. The destruction's quite interesting because... There's a whole thing about how they wanted to have it as a big explosion. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the reactor goes critical, boom. Um, but they decided that the Klingon warbird was too near. So you, you had to have a different sort of explosion. So that's why you have the hull oh, uh, yeah. falling in on itself. But I think it has been kind of brought into canon as, yes, because if something happened and someone made a ship go to self-destruct in space dock or with other ships around it, you wouldn't necessarily want it taking out every other ship. Mm-hmm. Something that like that. That makes sense. Mm. But yeah, so that's why they ended up changing the effects on it and so on. So you didn't think the Enterprise was going to be destroyed? No, I had no idea. Okay. Which probably means I'm the only person in the whole world who didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> that is a wonderful moment with it streaking down into the sky mm-hmm. and the death of the Enterprise, as it were, and, and something... Certainly by that point, they'd never done before. By this point, certainly in the TV shows, we get to see it a lot. And then, you know, time rewinds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or they just miraculously managed to fix it somehow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That episode of Voyager where Voyager dies over and over again. Timeless. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I read that there was a lot of secrecy surrounding the filming of this movie because they were going to destroy the Enterprise and they didn't want it leaked. Okay. But I think it did get leaked, and so then they... I could be wrong. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, no, I... Uh, like with Spock's death in number two, I f- it feels like, oh yes, it got leaked, and suddenly lots of people wanted to see it, because it's the death of the Enterprise. Mm, hey, okay. isn't that convenient? Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, though. I was reading about some of the security stuff that they did for this movie, and it was ridiculous. I mean, things like they chemically treated the paper... That the scripts were on so that if it did get copied, they could trace it back to whose it was. Right. I mean, they did some, like, pretty spy-level shit trying to keep oh, this boy. stuff safeguarded. Oh, Star Trek. Um, like, there were code words, and you had to have picture ID, and there were subtle changes in the words. I think they were also trying to keep it, um, like, Leonard Nimoy's name was never on any of the call sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't in the intro credits other than as the director. So I, I think they were actually trying to keep things like locked down. It just didn't happen. Yeah, I think they spelled Vulcan backwards as the character's name in the script. Yeah. And in the opening credits, there was an extra long pause where his name would be. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I, I, I think I've never looked for it. It's just one of those things you read and go, oh, okay. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah. I think they tried. They really yeah. did try. The, the best one of those, what you've made me think of, is for um, Star Trek The Next Generation, The Best of Both Worlds, the Borg episodes. And they changed the number of, there's like some star base they go to at the beginning mm-hmm. of the episode. And they changed the number for every script so that if it ever got leaked, they'd know whose copy got leaked. <laughs> right. Like, that's such a simple way of doing it. It's like, uh, is it Def Leppard's thing with the, the bowl with no brown M&Ms in it? Mm-hmm. Like, everyone makes fun of them because they have this writer that says, we want M&Ms, but we can't have any brown M&Ms. Mm-hmm. But for them, they put it in there because someone didn't follow out their rider once and the stage collapsed on them because their equipment was too heavy. So they put in this ridiculous thing and they said, if they follow that, we know it's all okay. Right. If they don't follow that, we need to look into it further. Right. Yeah, like, makes sense. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, got it. <laughs> so as well as the death of the Enterprise, we have the death of Kirk's son, David. Uh, we have the destruction of all the Klingons, except Maltz. And we have them sabotaging the uh, Excelsior. So there's a lot of like bad stuff in this, a lot of death, a lot of like treason and so on. Did you react to any of it? Did you emote with any of it? Mm, honestly, 
I think the thing that I reacted to the most was the destruction of the Enterprise. Right. Um, I was not emotionally invested in David's character, so when he died, I didn't really care. Like, I was surprised because they played it like it wasn't going to happen, and then it did. And Kirk's reaction to it was touching, but I wasn't emotionally invested in his character at all. The destruction of the Grissom meant nothing to me, which is kind of sad because that's an entire starship of people that just died, and then it was, like, never talked about again. Yeah, and it's a science ship. Right. There's no need to kill it. Right, exactly. So, no, I mean, I think it's interesting that there was so much death, but because the death wasn't the focus of the story of this one, that's not really where my emotions were sitting, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's a review. I was reading a review of the movie on the, the Den of Geeks website, and mm-hmm. they talked about all of this death and how ironic it is since all of this death is stemming from the creation of Genesis, which is life from nothing, essentially. Right. But then they talk about how while there's so much death, the movie is really about life because each of the sacrifices, no matter how great, leads Kirk to his goal of bringing his friend back from the dead. Um, They talk about Sarek's question um, to Kirk where he says, at what cost? Your ship, your son. And Kirk says, if I hadn't tried, the cost would have been my soul. And they continued with, that is the thing with the search for Spock. It is very human. No logical, the needs of the many stuff. This is out and out the needs of the one. A tale of human woe, sacrifice, and triumph. Even Krug is very human. His desire seeing him lurch from one disaster to another. The end titles of Star Trek The Motion Picture claimed that the human adventure was just beginning. The search for Spock proved that the human adventure never ends as long as we follow our hearts. (laughs) And that is so cheesy and so corny, but I like it. And I think that's exactly the reaction that you should have for a movie that is about Kirk doing everything he can to rescue his best friend, even, even when it's just giving his best friend peace and death. Because when this starts, he has no idea that there's a possibility that Spock could be alive. He wants to give Spock peace, and he wants to give McCoy peace, since he's obviously going bonkers with Spock in his head. Mm. You know, and and it's just, it's it's about love and life. And I like that. And it's not what you expect from Star Trek. Yeah. I think the film goes out of its way to uh, justify or make the death and destruction okay so this introduction of the proto matter and the fact he cheated and actually genesis is uh fallible Mm -hmm. or you know corrupts in some way it almost makes it like okay he's allowed to die he's made a big muck up Hmm, Um, i didn't read it that way and like the destruction of the enterprise is okay because they were just going to mothball her and use her spare parts and the crew was going to be disbanded or something so we might as well go out in a blaze of glory Okay. A literal ball of flames. Right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, and Grissom is a very useful thing to show the brutality of the Klingons. Mm-hmm. So they, they blow up this ship because the gunner's not that good. And then the gunner gets killed and called an animal because that's what Klingons do. Right. Mm. I, I would almost... I think I'd prefer it a little bit if we had not quite justified it so much. If, like actually losing the Enterprise was a big sacrifice. If they made more of... If we do this, we're stranded on this planet that is possibly dying. But at least it gets through this situation and onto the next situation. And Right. But it's always like, oh, it's Kirk. He'll find a way out of that. And I don't know whether that's just because kind of we know Star Trek and Star Trekky tropes. Well, I mean, I think so. It's Star Trek. You, you expect by the end they're going to get out of whatever it is that they get out of. You know, I think McCoy even had a line. What have I done? What you had to do, what you always do, turn death into a fighting chance to live. That sums up Kirk completely. A hundred percent. That sums up Kirk. And so I think even with the destruction of the Enterprise, you are still expecting triumph. Oh, yeah. Completely agree. I just wish there was a thing of, oh, this is not a good idea, but we have to do it because this is the only thing we've got. Like, there's, there's just nothing about... Well, we're on Genesis now. Uh... <laughs> That's true. I think... Help. 
<laughs> what they did was they did show emotion during uh, the sequence of activating the self-destruct, but that emotion was because they're mm. destroying an old friend. The yeah. Enterprise is their home. And there was never once a sense that they felt like they were putting themselves into peril. Mm-hmm. Um. Honestly, I thought that they were going to beam themselves onto the Klingon ship. I didn't expect them to end up on the surface. But they never felt like – it never felt like they thought they wouldn't get out of it somehow. Yeah. Which is odd considering the planet was exploding around them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think at one point, like, they were standing there and a rock – like burst out of the ground underneath Krug and launched him at Kirk. Yep. <laughs> I mean, right. you can't make this stuff up. So. <laughs> well, clearly you can. <laughs> yes, yes, clearly you can. Um, um, have you seen the new Star Treks? Yes. The Chris Pine ones? Yes. I, I don't necessarily remember details about all of them. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed all of them. Okay. Because that's kind of the uh, thing with it now is... The Enterprise gets destroyed in basically every film. Hmm. Okay. Certainly in those new ones. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just, it gets to the point of like, okay. Oh, look, it's the point that they destroy the Enterprise. To the extent in Beyond, it's like the first thing that happens. Yeah, <laughs> I do remember that. It's quite nice. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it, that's how they end up on the planet. Mm. Where they meet, what's her face? Kayla. Ayla. That's her name. Yeah. Kay- Kayla. Jayla. Jayla. Yes, it is Jayla. <laughs> Sorry, Kayla is Worf's other <laughs> half, and I've been listening to stuff about the actress who played her recently. Okay. 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 And actually, mentioning Beyond, um, we had a comment from at Gypsy Book Nerd on Twitter about the uh, in-universe in references, almost, to Search for Spock mm-hmm. that happened in Beyond. And partially, I think, like, Star Trek Beyond is written by Trekkies for Trekkies. <laughs> There is a lot of in-universe uh, references and side gags and stuff going on. But she points out that, like, Kirk does a toast to absent friends in Beyond that he also does in his birthday party in uh, Such a Spock. Mm-hmm. There's a bit where they wear, like, civilian clothes. Or, or uh, Scotty puts on a leather, leather jacket that is basically the same jacket that he wears in this film. Okay. And the thing about Bones and Spock being beamed up separately so that they don't get combined... Which is a bit like them sharing the culture, like they're combined here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite nice to have all those little references and things in there. I feel like I need to go, I want to go back and rewatch Star Trek Beyond. I remember immensely enjoying it, especially after the second one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Woof. But I've only <laughs> seen it maybe twice, but it's been a long time. And so right. I don't remember specific details. And and so, yeah, I never would have picked up on any of these things. Like, watching, having watched that one first and then going to this one, I definitely wouldn't have noticed those things. But I think that if I went back and watched Beyond Now, I would probably be like, oh, that makes sense. And that's that's how you do references well. Like, make it so that you don't have to know them to enjoy the film. Mm -hmm. But if you do know them, it makes it better. Like, that's how Discovery's done it. And Discovery's been flawless at doing it, I think. Right. The beaming up and combining into one person is, of course, also uh, Voyager's like best episode, Tuvix. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was that's a good episode, a tough episode, but a good one. Vo- Voyager actually did sci-fi. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of clothes, since you you mentioned Scotty's jacket, I mm. I find it fascinating that in this one, especially since. In the first one, the uniforms were such a big deal, like enough that Shatner said the only way he would do more Star Trek is if those uniforms were never used again. (laughs) And this one, primarily, they didn't wear uniforms at all. They were all in street clothes, except for Scotty um, Mm. and Uhura. And I found it fascinating that Kirk's street clothes are very, very similar to his uniform. Did you notice that? Yeah, that must be by design. Like the color, the cut. Yeah. The way he carries himself wearing it, it was fascinating. And it just, it makes me want to explore more the mind of a Starfleet, I guess, admiral at this point. Mm. Like, what is it about being an admiral that makes you want to even look the part when you're supposed to be in your civvies? Is it like people who just wear their school uniform, basically? But like, oh, 
Uh, that color suits me. I'll just keep wearing it. Eh, maybe. <laughs> but nobody else did because, oh, man, let me just say, Sulu, yeah. Sulu looked sharp. Sulu had a cape. Sulu had a cape and he had this yeah. like teal robe thing and it he looked good. It's amazing. Yeah. Um Chekhov <laughs> in his little pink little Lord Fauntleroy outfit. Oh, Chekhov. I, I have I have heard Walter Koenig saying, Yeah, I wish we'd had more time to change that. <laughs> All I can say is poor dude. It's very clear that he is the youngest on the crew. It's really sad, isn't it? I, I, I'm really cynical about this. It's the same thing in, again, those new Star Trek films. Like, oh, they land on the planet. And then they end up wearing, like, going outside uniforms that are different from normal uniforms. So we can sell more action figures and oh. posters and uniforms. And yeah. In, in franchises, I'm always a little cynical, I'm afraid. You cynical? <laughs> Can't <Yeah>. imagine. <laughs> But yeah, I do like. I I just can't stop watching Chekhov. Anytime he's on screen, he's got the little collar thing going on in this pink, possibly leather suit. <laughs> oh lord, pink leather! It's awesome. Nobody should do that. Bless him. <laughs> mm. So I'll tell you who is styled in this film that I quite like is the Klingons. Yeah. Now we we're not quite into the Klingons, not quite as they would look and feel in next gen, but we're still a couple of years off that. Y- at the moment. It's very close, though, except for yeah. his girlfriend. I've never in all of my life seen a female Klingon that did not look like a male Klingon until this yeah, she movie. Does, she doesn't have a boob window, which <laughs> I, I thought that was like <laughs> clothing du jour for Klingon women. Well, I mean, yeah, there's that. But I mean, she was like fully decked out in makeup and jewelry and sparkles. Mm. And the iteration of Klingons that I grew up on were that. You couldn't tell the difference between male and female Klingons except for the boob window. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like dwarves in Lord of the Rings. Okay. They're the same. And so it was just surprising to see, like, a princess Klingon. I mm. liked it. Yeah. I, I think part of it is he's supposed to be, like, a warlord. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Although I've just looked up pictures just to remind myself. She does have an astonishingly plunging neckline, so I take back. You can edit out the window comment, because <laughs> I had not noticed and remembered that. Crikey. Oh, okay. <laughs> they did do a really good job, though, of making the Klingon ship and even the makeup and clothes of the Klingons appear like grungy mm-hmm. to kind of show... I mean... Movies do this a lot where they make the villains look dirty, mm-hmm. but it was done really, really well here with the Klingons versus, say, the Enterprise or the Grissom in the beginning. Yeah, they don't quite have some of the style we'll come to know them for, but the attitude, this is it. And this is where the Klingon language comes from, this film. We had a few lines in the motion picture, which was mostly garbage. And then for this, they actually got, uh, I think Mark Ogrand is his name? To come and write a language uh, and, and start developing it. And obviously we now have Klingon as a, a fully established language with mm-hmm. uh, with pop music and the like being uh, released in Klingon and opera done and so on. But this is the film it comes from. And there's a few moments you can still hear it and see it. And, and it, again, in their attitude, certainly, um, when they're going to board the Enterprise. And they say, look, you know, they outnumber us a lot. And Krug is just like, we are Klingons. I don't care if it's stupid. We're doing this thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We have an opportunity to take our enemy ship. So just go and take it. Um, but at the same time, he's really concerned about his monster dog thing. He is very sad. It is the one thing he cares for, even more so than Valkyrie. Yes. And like on the planet when he's posturing against Kirk. And I just love it. And again, that's the attitude we would come that, that will be part of the sort of Klingon honor system is, you know, the, the planet's destroying itself. Exhilarating, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if we don't get out of here, we'll die here. Then that's the way it shall be. Yeah. Arr. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Love it. I I honestly didn't know that. I didn't realize that this Doc Brown Klingon was essentially the beginning of the Klingons as we know them now. Mm. Or at least the beginning of the the journey to get them there. Yeah. I had no idea. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, and you can, like I say, you can hear the language a bit when, um, oh, I can't even remember where it is, there's a bit where they say success, and you can just hear him going, Kapla, which is, uh, it, certainly through DS9, will become a, a, a big, oft-used phrase. And when he shoots the guy who's destroyed the Grissom, he calls him a Patuk, which, as someone who's watched Voyager, we hear a lot through Voyager as calling someone an animal. <laughs> And this is where it comes from. It was invented for this. And some of it was changed because Christopher Lloyd could not get his mouth around some of the words. So they changed them. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. I like it. Yeah. Okay. I think there might even been bits where they, oh, I'm sure I've heard something like they got them to film stuff. And then they use Klingon words that looked like the English words they were saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> kind of lip synced it a bit. Right. Yeah, but the the film, uh, in terms of introductions, we've got all this introduction with the Klingons. We've got the bird of prey that mm-hmm. they're flying. Um, this is the first time we see it, and it will go on to be a major part of other films and all of Next Gen and all of DS9. That is an important ship in Star Trek. But we have the introduction of the Grissom of the Excelsior, which is a model that we see again and again in other shows, um, and Space Dock. And even the, the shots of them going into Space Dog will be used again in Next Generation just with the graphics of the Enterprise D over the Enterprise. Okay. That exact shot. I don't think <laughs> I knew that, but okay. Yeah, it's great. That is great. Um, and the, the Excelsior, I kind of love the way they differentiate it from the Enterprise. It's it's very 80s. It's, it's sleek, but sharp lines. Mm-hmm. There's not really anything curved about it particularly. Right. Um, so, it, so it does feel like an 80s futuristic version of the Enterprise. But the crew are all a bit younger, a bit more gung-ho. They've got the seats that fold in on themselves. They can be like, oh, we're going to transwarp. It's an important moment. Let's do a thing. And, <laughs> you know, the computer actually talks at them a lot more. And the graphics are a bit different. They, they worked really hard to make it feel like something very different. Okay, but why did the captain of the Excelsior have a scepter-like thing? Well, that's, again, an old military thing. Really? I I think that I think they are literally called swagger sticks. Oh my goodness. For like people in charge of bits of the military to carry around and point at stuff. Which I I wonder if it's almost I wonder if it's like the the point at which we stop carrying swords, but they still it's good to have something to kind of gesticulate with and point at people and be a bit threatening with. But Kirk never had one of those. Picard Uh, never had one of those. They have rapier like wit, so (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. But I mean, this is a guy who's posturing. He talks about wanting to break the speed records and talks down the Enterprise. That's true. Okay. So he he needs it to feel special and important about himself. Yes. Okay. Big phallic thing under his right. Okay. Um, yeah. I got it. But I do. I also quite like him. Again, he's different from Kirk. Very, very obviously, they are trying to make him feel different and a bit inferior in some ways. But, like, he's in his quarters filing his nails. <laughs> and he gets a thing about yellow alert in Space Dock. And he just presses the button, like, how can you have yellow alert in Space Dock? <laughs> I think that's a valid question. It's absolutely valid. And a- another film would not have asked that. Another film would have been like, what's going on? <gasps> you know, and just up the melodrama really quickly. But he's just like, what? <laughs> Why are you bothering me with this nonsense? My nails need to look fabulous. <laughs> Speaking of alerts, mm. why why did Kirk have to go to red alert on the Enterprise when literally every single person on the ship was in the same room? Does he? He Yeah, he does. Okay. When he's getting ready to be fired on by the Klingons, they go to red alert. I wonder if it's just a, like, does it do automatic stuff on the ship? Dim the lights and... It turns enhance. the lights red. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, but it just seemed so strange. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just for the ritual of it, but I was just thinking Red Alert is there to let the crew know that there's something going on and they need to prepare to go to battle stations. They're already in battle stations. There are six people on this ship and they're all on the bridge. Yeah. That's all. Just in case. Just in case. Maybe they had a stowaway, needed to know. I really need you to watch Red Dwarf at some point. They're in they're in yellow alert and he goes, We need to go to red alert. Are you sure, sir? It does mean changing the bulb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> Alright, I have to watch the prisoners first. Yeah, true. Yeah. I yeah, I love the Excelsior. 
uh, that is a very, very nice thing. And I think just before we talk about our very favourite stuff from this, um, we did get a great message from Jossie at Jossbot7, um, who said that this was one of the first movies we taped from TV on our VCR. So it's this over and over as a kid. Um, ditto, yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember the horror when a few years into these watchings, I realised that Doc Brown was a murderous Klingon. Aww. Just say, I, I wonder if that's coming to it when you don't necessarily look for actors and different roles and so on. Because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think it took me a while to realise it was the same person playing them. Okay. But they are very, very different characters. So. They are very, very different characters. Mm. But Christopher Lloyd did a wonderful job Yeah. with, with Krug. I think my... As we're leading into our favorite moments, I think my favorite oh. Krug moment was a sad one, actually, when he realizes that the ship is about to self-destruct and he just full-on panics and is trying to get his crew off that ship. And you see his his fear, his anger, his sorrow all at one time as he is just so furious that Kirk has done this, that he's losing his crew. Mm. I thought it was done really, really well. Yeah, I'd agree. And it's it's something that you don't really expect from a Klingon when you've come to Klingons backwards the way that I have, you know, starting with TNG and then you know, into Voyager and, and you've seen the the Klingons like Worf and Tuvok. No, wait, Tuvok is not a Klingon. He's a Vulcan. <laughs> when you've seen Klingons like Worf, but then... And you... Torres. <laughs> and then you also get the warriors that are... Never show emotion ever. And, mm. and not from a Vulcan standpoint of logic, but from we're too tough to have emotion. You know, to see Krug have that level of emotion was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, and it fits much more with the DS9 take on Klingons, where Klingons are lively and they embrace living because they know they might die in the next battle and all this kind of thing, which they then use when because Worf joins DS9 when TNG finishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use it as an exploration of, okay, why is Worf not like that? Uh, okay. There's a good episode or two where uh, you find out because of his being raised by humans and uh, there's a whole thing of he killed someone accidentally in a soccer match. Um, Spoilers. And that, yeah, and that causes him to to sort of be more restrained because he knows how uh, feeble and weak humans can be. Okay. Hmm. Huh, interesting. So what else did you enjoy? Oh, there was so much that I really liked in this one. It had some really, really great dialogue. Mm. There was a moment when Kirk was trying to get his boss to tell to let him go search for Spock, go back to Genesis. No, absolutely not, Jen. You're my best officer. But I am commander, Starfleet, so I don't break rules. Don't quote rules to me. I'm talking about loyalty and sacrifice. One man who's died for us. Another with deep emotional problems. Now, wait a minute. This business about Spock and McCoy... Honestly, I never understood Vulcan mysticism. You don't have to believe. I'm not even sure that I believe. But if there's even a chance that Spock has an eternal soul, then it's my responsibility. Yours. As surely as if it were my very own. And I like that they don't just play this as if Vulcan mysticism is the default. That it is 100% true that it just is it's it's okay to question it but on the off chance that this is a thing he is my friend and i have to go do what i can for my friend mm. yes very nicely done and so then kirk's response to that whenever he comes back and the crew wants to know what they told him i think they asked what's the word and and kirk says the word is no i am therefore going anyway <laughs> <laughs> like that's the kirk i know yeah <laughs> Um, and then we already mentioned Bones uh, telling Kirk that he's going to do what he always does, turn death into a fighting chance to live. That That is such a well done scene. It's really emotional, just them standing there watching it going down. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a couple of lines, but it is just all about being in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we talked about the exchange between Sarek and Kirk. And when I read did the review of the, the Den of Geeks review, um, if I hadn't tried, mm. the cost would have been my soul. 
you know, Kirk is just so self-aware in this one, which is an interesting change for him, I think. Mm. He also did the the emotion on his face whenever he learned that David died was pretty great. I felt like it was unearned emotion because he only just found out that David was his son. So I feel like he's mourning the idea of his son more than he's actually mourning his son. Yeah. But the acting behind it was still really, really nice. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely spot on comment. It is the 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 loss of the opportunity to get to know his son mm-hmm. and spend time with him, having just found him, um, right. or, or or you know rekindled whatever. But yeah, him not actually hitting the chair, just falling on the floor. Yeah, Klingon bastard, you killed my son. Mm-hmm. It's really good because you don't swear in Star Trek. You don't show anger in that way. Certainly not our protagonists. Mm-hmm. And I like that it doesn't necessarily impact what happens next but he does also destroy Krug's crew yeah but to be fair did he know that the entire crew was coming over no but they know Klingon so they could probably make a guess maybe okay that's fair I also have what may be an unpopular opinion go on I actually really liked Robin Curtis as Savick okay um I I feel like I read a lot of people uh, places where they said that her performance was wooden and that Mm -hmm. she just didn't do for the character what Kirstie Alley did for the character in Wrath of Khan and I I think what sold me on her was her compassion for Spock and how she tried to help him through Ponfar and like just trying to be there as he's going through this Everything that he went through in those few hours was just excruciating. And she did everything she could to at least try and give him some measure of comfort. And I think because the character did that, I really appreciated the performance too. Mm, okay. Like It's hard for me to separate the two because I enjoyed the character so much. Like more so than I did in Wrath of Khan. Okay. It's okay. You can disagree I, with me. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking on it. I think I, I like the sort of traditional Vulcan who thinks they're a bit superior and makes slightly passive-aggressive or sarcastic comments to everyone. Mm-hmm. Which is what you get a little bit in Spock, but very much in Savic, and eventually you get in Tuvok as well. Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I, I always find that quite fun characterization. It works very well for me. So I think I would agree that she is very wooden. There, there is not really much there. But she's supposed to be, I think. I guess I look at it the way... I feel like if we had seen Spock when he was her age, he would have been very much the same. But because he's older, he's been with humans for so, so long, plus he's half human. You know, he gets a lot more of that humanity. And so he gets a lot more of of that emotion and compassion, even if it is from a logical perspective, it's still there. But she doesn't have that same background. She's got pure Vulcan logic on her side and nothing else. And so I feel like looking at it from that perspective, she did exactly what she was supposed to do. Yeah, but it's it's missing any of the uh, the snarkiness, the, the slight side to, to how Vulcans are often portrayed. Okay. And it's, it's, it's apocryphal because they never included it, but it was always written that Savik is half Romulan. So oh. she's not a full Vulcan as well, but, but they just trashed it from both films. Okay. And of course, yeah, I'd completely forgotten to mention this. We have the gratuitous uh, Ponfar sex scene in the middle. Yeah. The the rubbing of fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't re- entirely sure what was happening there. I mean, I knew it was Ponfar, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't remember like what it looked like and what the ritual was supposed to be. And so I was not entirely sure what was happening there, but... yeah. Yeah, it seemed weird. It is what it is. It, get, it gets them through. <laughs> it does. It, it's one of those things where because they do the thing, they've done the thing previously about Vulcans every seven years, you have to do it when you feature Vulcans. So they had to do an episode about Tuvok going through it at some point and the other Vulcans on Voyager. Mm-hmm. Um, and because Spock was aging quickly here, at some point you have to have him going through Ponfar. Yeah. Um, there's no way around it. Unless you just ignore it, in which case you then get all the Trek fans going, well, wouldn't he have gone through Ponfar and haven't we been told that they basically die if they don't get it on during Ponfar? Right. Hmm. Yeah. And, and a little bit like, because they then do Ponfar here has this whole stroking of fingers thing, every time we have anything to do with it in future, it has to have a stroking of fingers thing. 
<laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if, if you're going to invent something and set it up, you've got to do it. Yeah, they, they sort of write themselves into a corner a little bit sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. So I have talked about my love of the dialogue of this movie. What did you like the most? I'm not sure it's most. There's a few things that are, are really good that I think we should touch on. We, we've obviously not mentioned Uhura because Uhura was in this film. She was. <laughs> and very, very briefly. Um, and I have heard Nichelle Nichols was not totally happy with the amount of time she didn't get. But also was happy that they gave her some good stuff to do when she was there. Because she is great. She is great. The whole sequence with Mr. Adventure. Um, <laughs> you know, this isn't reality. This is fantasy. Right. It's great. It's really good. Yeah. As soon as he said, what was it he said? Reaching the the end of your career or something like that. Yeah. I was like, oh boy, you are in for it now. Yeah. And it's... This is how Uhura was used in the series a lot. She didn't get much to do. She was kind of the answering machine at times. But every so often, like, she gets to stand up to Khan and gets beaten for it, but is still the strong person doing that. Mm -hmm. She gets to help them when they're in the mirror universe and, and do cool stuff because she's trying to take over. Every so often, she got some really good stuff. And that's exactly what we see here. This is actually mm -hmm. a, a very good moment from Uhura. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like she didn't really have anything to do in Wrath of Khan. Um, That's and, true. And most of the crew got nothing to do in the motion picture. So oof. Yeah. Yeah, just be a familiar face on the screen. Mm. That's what we got a lot of. We talked in the Wrath of Khan about how it's actually very funny. Like every other line is a joke of some sort. Some sort of winky nod at something. Um, this film doesn't quite go that far. But that first hour, because it takes an hour for them to meet the Klingons. Um, like the film takes a very long time for them to get back to Genesis. Mm-hmm. But it's quite fun in, in all the time they're getting there. But there is the the one scene where they go to break McCoy out of the the break prison thing he's in. Mm -hmm. And almost every moment in that is a joke. It almost makes me wonder if, if they watched it an early cut and went, oh, it's a little bit grimdark at times. We need some bit more levity. Let's put in a scene that is all jokes. Because you have Sulu and the big... Um, security dude, calling him Tiny. <laughs> right. Um, but you have Kirk going into McCoy's cell and saying, oh, poor friend, I hear he's fruities and nutcake. And I actually had to double check because I could not remember if it was fruities and nutcake or nutties or fruitcake. And I'm still not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. that's, that's quite a nice, just a small line as like, I'm not sure what, that, what you mean there, Kirk, but we all get it. Okay. Right. But then he knocks the guy out looks at McCoy and he says, how many fingers am I holding up? And does the Vulcan salute. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, too soon. <laughs> oh. But it's really funny. It's a really good gag. Yeah. No, it is for sure. And that, that's probably the funniest bit in the whole thing. Except when he's on Genesis and he realizes there is a Klingon ship o o overhead and he signals up. He says, Klingon Commander, I'm still on the planet. I'm alive. Sorry about your crew. But as we say on Earth, c'est la vie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a sort of two fingers up. Like, you want me, you're going to have to come and get me. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I did also like one of the lines that Bones had um, when he examined the new Spock. Mm -hmm. um, and he was saying... Spock light. His... <laughs> yes, exactly. New Spock. His um, his mind is a void because I've got all his marbles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was like that's a good way to put that, and I it, it was it was Bones making light of this potentially very serious situation that is involving him and is having mm. serious ramifications for his life. Yeah. So I liked yeah, even it. even earlier with the how are we doing? How are we doing? It's funny you put it that way. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, last one and this is only because i i keep mentioning things that have come like into the personal lexicon phrases you use after seeing a film the bit at the end where kirk and spock have their moment when when we're not sure if spock is back to himself mm -hmm. and they do the whole the ship yeah you saved it spock you saved all of us and spock looks at him and he goes jim Your name is Jim. Yes. 
No, my favourite uncle was called Jim. And I know a lot of people called Jim. And I go to the gym a lot. Every <laughs> single time. Every single time. It's like, hey, should we go to the gym? Jim. <laughs> Every <laughs> single time. That does not surprise me about you one bit. It's great. <laughs> Just someone says, oh, yeah, when is Jim getting here? Jim. I don't think I ever said it to my uncle. I think I had more respect for, for him than that. But someone mentions the word Jim around me. Jim. Jim. <laughs> Jim. <laughs> hey, let's go to the gym. Jim. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah. Oh, um, there's one more thing I wanted to mention because we haven't mentioned mm. it. I found it utterly hilarious that when they – when Kirk – was trying to figure out if he had done the mind meld with somebody um, and was watching the the video recording of the room. Mm-hmm. The recording that he was watching was literally just the Wrath of Khan movie. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was he was Wait, watching they, they it as we did. They didn't go back and refilm it with new cameras. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It was just, it was weird. It was just weird. It's like okay. he was watching a movie with himself in it. Okay. Oh, you're going to enjoy that in Star Trek Four. Then there's another moment like that that's even, that that is even more. Wait, really? <laughs> okay, all right. I just noticed these things. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, you'll enjoy it. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Star Trek Three? Uh, we have one question from a Gypsy Book Nerd on Twitter. Rachel asked, "Do you have a favorite character or actor performance in this movie?" Oh. Hmm. Jim. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's either going to be McCoy or Krug. Okay. I mean, I really liked all of it, though, honestly. I mean, I even liked Savick. Give me a break. (laughs) I liked all of it. But I think if I had to pick a favorite, it's going to be McCoy or Krug. Okay. Like, Kirk is just too obvious. Yeah, it's hard to root for Kirk at times. It's always hard to root for him. Yeah. (laughs) I did really, really like, um, I think I read that there were seven different actors who were responsible for portraying Spock in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I really liked how they did it. Yeah. But yeah, I I feel like that's cheating because Spock wasn't actually a character. Like, he wasn't a character. He was an idea in this Mm -hmm. one until the very, very end. Yeah. His screams are played by Frank Welker, Mm -hmm. who was the voice of, I think, Megatron in The Transformers. Okay. Which Leonard Nimoy was in the Transformers movie as well. Right. So that's quite a funny one. Interesting crossover. Mm. <laughs> what about you? Did you have a favorite? I think possibly Scotty. Okay. He he gets quite a lot to do in general in this. Um, it's all the usual Scotty stuff of getting the Enterprise up and running and so on. But his lines are always very good about it. He has the thing about, oh, you know, I'll have it ready for you in a week, but you don't have a week, so I'll have, oh, give me two days, whatever mm-hmm. that line is. His annoyance of, at the Excelsior being so good, being better than the Enterprise. And and even then when he has to go and work on the on the Excelsior, mm-hmm. and like the turbo lifts, like, have a good day, up your shaft. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, wee little bugger. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, all the way through, he's he's everything he gets to do, he is competent without necessarily being overly capable. Mm-hmm. And, and even when they're approaching the space dock doors and the doors are shut, and Kirk's like, "And now, Mrs. Scott, I sir, I'm working on it. <laughs> like, get away from breathing over my shoulder. I'm trying to open the doors. I'm not sat here." twiddling my thumbs right right <laughs> i was genuinely concerned that they were gonna run into the doors <laughs> which is stupid because you know they're not yeah but it was it was very like heart clutchy there for a minute it's a good bit of tension mm-hmm. mm. yeah no I, I like scotty in this he's good i liked all of them in this i really did yeah sulu didn't get much to do but he looked really good he did not good. doing it yeah he is he is rocking the lando look Yes. And we've not really gone into it, but this film riffs a lot on The Empire Strikes Back. Some of the looks, the alien smuggler dude who is basically Yoda. Yes. Yeah. He did. 
I yeah, I made a note of that in my thoughts doc. I was like, this dude looks like one. We haven't really seen an alien that looked quite like that on Star Trek before. Mm. And he talked like Yoda. It was very weird. Yeah. Like it did not feel like Star Trek in that moment. No. Nah. Thought it was just me. All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can send us an email at podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can leave us a wonderful voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. We are both on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Bowes. We are completely funded by our wonderful listeners through Patreon. Anything you give, give us access to exclusive content, additional behind-the-scenes stuff, and various announcements that we do every so often. You can find more information on patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest news and announcements, remember to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. The link is on eloquentgushing.com. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Wayne's World. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I have had enough of you. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, please visit eloquentgushing.com.